morning you have your Bible. Remember, we're in the, a series in the book of Exodus, and we're studying the book of Exodus. So grab your Bible and turn there this morning. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you're going to be on page 54 as we go into chapter 3 of the book of Exodus this morning. Chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. The title of our sermon this morning is The God Who Speaks. The God Who Speaks. I want us to, to bring us ourselves back into the story by just looking at the last two verses of chapter 2 briefly. Chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 say this, Now, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew now, just like chapter 1 opened up, noting that Joseph and all of his siblings who had come into Egypt had died, and the story was moving on with a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who did not know Joseph's God, he began to rule and reign, and now here in chapter 3, we're, we're finding out that Pharaoh, he too is dead, and yet the story continues to move on. One of the fascinating things, if you uh, dig into studying the book of Exodus, is that Moses, in writing this book, never tells us the name of any of the pharaohs that we encounter. Pharaoh, you, you know, is just the title, king of Egypt. It's not his personal name. Moses certainly knew the name of the pharaoh. Remember, Moses was raised in the pharaoh's home, so he knew if it was uh, Amenhotep II or Seti I, who scholars believe was one of the two pharaohs who enslaved the Israelites. But Moses doesn't record his name anywhere in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Two, he here just dies, the Pharaoh has died, and a new Pharaoh has come to power, and he continues to move on. The reason I believe Moses does this and doesn't give us the name of the Pharaoh is because as powerful as the Pharaoh thinks he is, he is nothing and a nobody compared to the true God. And like I said before, this whole story that's unfolding, it's not about any of the earthly figures we encounter. It's not really about Moses, it's not about the Pharaoh, it's not about anyone else that shows up in the story at any point. It's about the God who was at the beginning, the God who was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who saved and providentially guided Joseph into Egypt, as we talked about in week one, the God who saw and rescued the baby Moses as we talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. And despite those events stretching over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, still this one living God is active and present in every age. He truly is the point of the story, what he's doing, who he is, what he says. So as we come into chapter 3, we find Moses. Remember, Moses is this man who's fled from Egypt as a wanted criminal, a murderer, who was graciously given a new life by God in the land of Midian. Moses has fled from Egypt into the wilderness of Midian, and he finds there a wife and a son and a new job as a shepherd. And the story jumps forward yet again from his birth and his miraculous deliverance to that event of murder and flight to Midian now jumps once again to the next major event in Moses' life, it takes place about 40 years later. Again, we've jumped a long span of time from chapter 2, verse 1, to right now, a span of 80 years has taken place. That really is many days, as chapter 2 ended with right there. So let's look at chapter 3 this morning and the next major event in Moses' life. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Man, what, what an incredible moment this must have been to capture the attention of Moses as he's out about his job, tending to the flocks, taking them to a new area of pasture, and he sees something that catches his eye. Now, I know a lot of you are uh, somewhat like me. You enjoy a, a good fire out in the backyard. Maybe you have a fire pit or you go camping, and that's something you look forward to is getting a fire going. There's just something alluring about a good fire, right? A fire is inviting to us, and yet it's also foreboding. So a well-controlled fire is a great gift, right? There's beauty to it. There's heat that's produced from it. It's a place of comfort to get close to. We have a fire pit in the backyard now over at the, the house right next to the patio that, that Reed built for us, and uh, we've, we've been building it up. We've got the rocks laid down around it. We've got chairs and little tables. It's, not, it's a great place. In the evening, it's beautiful as the sun begins to set behind the house. We go out, light a little fire, sit and talk, and it's it's wonderful to relax there with friends and family. It's to be drawn together around this nice fire that's there. But fire can be a little different as well when it's not under control. It can be devastating. It can be massively destructive. My friend, who I've mentioned many times before, uh, Isaac, is pastoring a church in Bethany, Missouri, and he's building a home there in Bethany. About two weeks ago, he sent me a series of photos of this black, smoldering land that was just about as far as you could see, all dark and, and smoke kind of rising from it, all scorched. And I'm like, look at these photos. What in the world is this? And finally, the text comes through to explain this is his backyard. They're building a house. They had a little construction debris, thought, oh, we'll burn it off. So they lit it up, his dad who was doing it. I guess I maybe shouldn't give that detail because he may listen to this later. Anyway, he walks away from the fire and goes to take care of something else, and he gets out of control and catches the yard on fire and begins to spread rapidly. So Isaac gets a call, hey, your backyard's on fire, and he and a bunch of guys have to run over there and try to put it out before it reaches the neighbor's yard. And thankfully, they did. No, no neighbor's property was ruined. His whole heart yard now is, is scorched black, and Isaac said the only thing really damaged were his shoes and possibly his lungs. And I said, well, you got to give your dad a hard time about that. But it's a sobering reminder looking at photos like that, and some of you have had experiences like that, a little fire that gets out of control does not take much time to consume and destroy, right? But what's so unusual about what Moses encounters there is not just fire. Moses had seen plenty of fire, probably even seen fire in the desert where it was dry and arid and something would light on fire from the heat of the sun. What was amazing to Moses was as he was going through the wilderness there of Midian at the Mount of Horeb, there's a blazing fire in the midst of a bush not in a controlled fire pit, in a bush there in the wilderness, and yet the bush is not being consumed or destroyed. It's simply blazing up in this bright burning that continues on. And naturally, Moses wants to know, what causes that? Fire destroys if left uncontrolled. So he turns aside from his flock, and he approaches the burning bush. In verse 4, we read, Now when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he replied, here I am. See now, Moses was drawn in to see something pretty incredible, but what happens here is even more impressive than just a burning bush that's not consumed, right? Moses wanted to know what is causing this amazing sight that I can see, but it was way more than what Moses expected to find there. The bush that was burning was not because of any natural fire. It was burning because the presence of God Almighty was there. 
And God calls out, notice there in verse 4, God calls out to Moses by name. This is the God who is, and this is what this God does. He not only sees all things, as we talked about last week, he's not only the God who can control and guide all things providentially, as we talked about two weeks ago, he's also the God who speaks and speaks personally to his people. He calls out to Moses by name. Now remember, Moses is hiding out in Midian because he's wanted for murder in Egypt. And yet God knows him. He knows his name. He knows everything about him. And he calls out to him from this burning bush. Just let that encounter sink in to your thinking for a moment as you understand that God today sees you and knows your name too. And just as God calls out to Moses by name, so he calls out to each one of his people when he saves us. See, God's already spoken to you by name if you are one of his people. Because nobody in this room or nobody who will hear this message later is better than anyone else in this world. The only reason anyone is a Christian is not because we figured it all out. We were so smart. We were so devout. We were so clever. We could find God on our own by our nature, by our abilities. No, it's because God called out to us by name. A well-known verse you've heard me quote many times makes it clear that you and I, we don't find God on our own. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. So if you and I, if we're not righteous on our own, if we do not have right understanding on our own, if we're not seeking for God before we are saved, then how is it that any of us in this place have encountered the power of the living God? Because God called you and I by name. He sought us first. He sought us out. He initiated the call. And you and I are responding to the God who calls our name. This is what Jesus taught in John chapter 6 when he talked about the Father drawing his people unto Jesus. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10 when he flatly declares this in John 10, 3 and 4. The sheep will hear their shepherd's voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And just a few verses later, Jesus makes the point of the parable clear in verse 14. I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and they know me. Christian, this means God not only calls Moses by name all those years ago in the wilderness of Midian, he calls you and I by name too. God draws us into his presence. Just as he drew Moses into his presence there, he called him by name because God knows the name of all who belong to him. And the statement that God then makes to Moses as Moses draws near to the one calling to him is important for you and I to hear as well. And the response that Moses has should be heeded by each of us today as well. Look at verse 5. Then God said, Do not come near, better translate, do not come nearer. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, when God speaks to Moses and he calls him by name and draws him to himself, God also reveals to Moses more about who he truly is, what it means to know God, what it means to encounter God, to experience his holiness. 
So Moses is told here, take care, remove your sandals, which is an act of humility and reverence, God says, because this place is holy ground. And understand, it's not that it was holy ground because the land itself around Mount Horeb was special in some way. No, the ground was made holy because the holy God had manifest himself there. God's holiness is that essential attribute of himself that speaks to him being set apart from everything else that exists. When we say God is holy, what we're saying is a shorthand way of saying God is the creator and everything else is created. God is infinite and everything else is finite. God is eternal and everything else has a beginning or an end. God is unlimited and unhindered. Everything else has limits and boundaries that hold it still in place. God is immutable and independent. Everything else is changing and contingent. All of this and more is wrapped up in this one simple descriptor, this powerful phrase, God is holy. He's not like you and I. He's not just a better version of humanity. He is totally and fully set apart from everything else that exists. And so when that God, the holy God, shows up in a place, that place becomes holy because the holy one is there. So as much as going to Israel is a, is a wonderful experience and, and one that I long to do, the thing is when Stephanie or Randy or Carolyn got to go to Israel, the ground that they walked on isn't any better ground inherently because it's in Israel in a holy place. No, the only reason the ground would be special there is because God himself showed up. The holiness of a place is only contingent upon the presence of God. And this is why you and I can talk about a church building like this being a holy place. Why some of us might feel like these altars are a holy place. It's not because these places are specially made. They don't have special materials. There's no uh, process by which they have been purified and made a, a place where God hears you more here than he hears you anywhere else. The only reason this building, this place for prayer could be considered holy is because God meets with his people here. And so maybe you have a, a holy place where you've met with God in your home or in the woods or in your car driving along. The thing that makes the place holy is if the Holy One is there. It's not about going somewhere special. In fact, what's amazing is Mount Horeb, the actual location of that, is disputed. We don't know exactly where Moses was when the bush caught fire. Now, if the place itself had been holy, surely we would have remembered that. So everyone could go back there, make those pilgrimages there. That's not the case. We're not actually sure which mountain Moses was near when God showed up. The only thing that made that place holy was the presence of God himself manifest. And so when God shows up and when God meets with his people, he tells Moses what he would tell us as well. Take care. Humble yourself. Become aware that the Holy One is here. And that should be the response of you and I when God draws close to us as well. We should come into this place, into these services of worship, and we should humble ourselves before God. We should recognize that this place, these buildings, these songs that we sing together, the hours that we spend in interacting with one another, these moments of hearing him speak through his word, they're not about us, and they're not about our preferences. They're about God. They're about the Holy One who gives meaning and significance when he shows up to meet with those who he has called by name. Look at verse 6. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid 
to look at God. After God expresses this foundational aspect of who he is, he is the Holy One set apart, different than everything else that exists. He tells Moses, reminds Moses that he has entered into a special relationship with Moses and with the Israelite people. And Moses becomes afraid and hides his face. See, that's the proper response when we recognize who God is and when we see him manifest himself truly. I've said this many times before, from the pulpit and in small groups and in one-on-one conversations, this response should be a clear marker for you and I to use when we hear someone or some group claim that the special presence of God shows up regularly to them. How they respond when that happens says a lot about what's actually happening. To make it more clear, false prophets and false religions are very glib about the presence of God supposedly showing up to them. So there are churches, like churches I've mentioned to you before, Bethel Church in Redding, California, who claim that the special presence of God shows up in their services and gold dust and feathers fall from the ceiling, conveniently from near where the HVAC is located. Those things happen, and you watch the response of the people. It's trite. It's trivial. They're laughing. They're yelling. They're acting like giddy little children, doing all of these things that don't look anything like the response of people in the Bible when the presence of God shows up. Listen to a false teacher like Kenneth Copeland talk about how he can have a casual argument with God as they're flying 30,000 feet in his private jet. And compare that to the response that you see in Scripture when the holy God really shows up. The response to the true God's real presence is very different than what you hear said from these false teachers in our day. When the true God's real presence shows up here, Moses is face down, afraid to look because he understands God is holy and he is not. When the true God's real presence is manifest to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book, Isaiah cries out, I am unworthy and I am unclean. When the true God's real presence manifests to the apostle John on the island of Patmos, John falls to his face like a dead man in worship. Compare those responses to the modern claims you hear, and you'll be able to see when someone is pretending or deceiving. When someone who is not worshiping the true God, who is a false prophet, who should be rejected and not followed by those of us who know and love the real true God. People who can be glib about the presence of the Holy One are people who are either mocking the real God or having encounters with demonic forces that they've been deceived into thinking are the true God. Moses responds the way people respond when the Holy One comes. And notice, God isn't just showing up here to impress Moses. He's not just showing up here to elicit fear in Moses. He's not even just there to get the worship of one man in the wilderness. God shows up because he has something important to say. He's the God who speaks. Look at verses 7 to 9. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now this is a great and an exciting speech for Moses to get to hear, right? 
Here he is, the Holy One, who's this appearing in fire and majesty before him. And he tells Moses, I've seen everything, Moses. I see the sufferings. I know the oppression. I know the evils of the Egyptian. And I have come to deliver my people. This is incredibly good news. This is the gospel spoken to Moses. God sees the captives. He loves the captives. And God himself is coming to rescue them and give them blessings and goods that far exceed what they deserve. But notice how God ends the speech in verse 10. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. <laughs> See, now I have to imagine there's been some ups and downs emotionally for Moses here in just this encounter, right? Some mixed feelings going on. Moses surely starts out with wonder. As he's walking with the flock, there's the bush burning but not consumed. He, he goes to explore what this wonderful sight is, and then he's moved to fear and reverence when God calls to him by name and reveals his holiness to Moses. And then Moses surely would have felt incredible relief and worship and gratitude and wonder as he hears God declaring, I have seen the suffering of my people. I know the evils they have endured and are facing. And Moses, I'm coming to rescue my people. Surely Moses' heart was alive with joy in that moment. But then I have to imagine there's some confusion and fear that sets in when God says to Moses, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh. And Moses is a little confused because he asks a series of questions in response to God. Look at verse 11, the first one. He says, Moses said to God, Oh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, Moses really gets it here, doesn't he? God is talking about deliverance from the most powerful and advanced nation on earth at that time. And Moses knows God's talking about bringing a whole nation out, two million people at least, out of Egypt. Two million people who the Pharaoh has been using as slave labor, effective slave labor, building cities to store his wealth and treasure in. And God is telling Moses, come here, I want you to be a part of the plan. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. You know, the guy whose predecessors ordered your enslavement and called for the open murder of your people and tried to murder you as a baby, Moses. I'm going to send you to the new Pharaoh. And Moses knows he is nobody compared to Pharaoh. I mean, just last week, we saw 40 years before this, when he murders the Egyptian, he fears the response of the Pharaoh in that day, right? And he runs. Moses doesn't think, yeah, Pharaoh's a pretty big dude, but I got him. Let's go. Right? He feared him. He ran. He gave up everything to hide in the wilderness. And here God says, I will send you back. Moses knows I'm nobody compared to the Pharaoh. I cannot accomplish this great task on my own. And so listen to God's reply to Moses' question. When Moses says, who am I? God says this, verse 12. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. (laughs) Moses says, I'm a nobody. I can't accomplish that assignment, God. And God's reply is, I know, but I will be with you. See, God's reply here is not to build up Moses. It's not to to show Moses how great Moses really is, right? He doesn't point back to all the skills and experiences that Moses has. God doesn't say, no, no, Moses, you're really well-suited for the task. There's nobody in history who is as well-suited for this task that I'm giving you as you. 
I mean, remember, Moses, you were educated in Pharaoh's palace. You have political experience. You spent 40 years with the finest education there. You know the ins and outs of this whole place. You have experiences. You, you spent the last 40 years growing as a personal relational leader. You've been a shepherd. You've been a family man for 40 years. No, Moses, look, I've, I've shaped you over the course of your 80 years of life to make you the perfect candidate for this. God doesn't build up Moses at all doesn't remind him of a single thing like that. God simply tells Moses, I will be with you. You're right, Moses. You're incapable. You are not able to accomplish the task on your own, but I'm not sending you on your own. I will be with you. I mean, that's everything. The God who can make a random bush in the wilderness near a mountain burn with a fire that doesn't consume it, that doesn't destroy it, who turns the ground from ordinary ground, desert, wilderness, to a holy place, he tells Moses, I will be with you when you go. And that will make all the difference. But Moses is still afraid. So he asks another question, a crucial question, really a more important question than asking who am I? He asks this in verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses is just asking this question. The heart of it is this. He's asked, Who am I? And now he asks God, Who are you, God? That's the heart of this. Who are you, God? During the, the time of the Protestant Reformation, the, the most influential and formative book of that era opens with these words that are right and wise. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And the next paragraph rightly says this, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. What that simply means is this. You and I will never be able to answer the first question, who am I, until we know the answer to the second question, who is he? You and I can't understand ourselves rightly unless we know God rightly. So Moses asks the crucial question, second, who are you, God? And again, God graciously replies, I mean, he doesn't owe Moses an answer, right? He's given him a command. He is the Holy One who is there. But here he answers this feeble man, this murderer hiding out in the wilderness of Midian. And we get to read this incredible statement from the God who speaks, verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. God's response here is to tell Moses that he is utterly unique, that he is the Holy One, that he is the I Am. So you and I will answer the question, who am I, a lot of different ways, depending upon the different seasons that we may find ourselves in. And all the ways you and I are tempted to answer the question, who am I, is always partial and poor, really. Humanity is drawn to defining ourselves by things, 
things that are temporal and trite, really, terrible things to try and become our core identity, yet we try to do it. We talk about the things we do, we talk about the things we have, or we talk about the people we are in relationship with. But all those things are temporary things, right? So I, I could answer the question, when someone says, well, who are you, or, or I introduce myself to someone, I can share that I'm a pastor, that's what I do. I could talk about how I drive a Sienna minivan or a Prius. I don't usually lead with that. Um, my father-in-law gives me a hard time. 50 miles to the gallon, I'm just saying. There's a reason I keep it around. Or I could introduce myself and say, I'm a husband to Malia. I'm father to Tobiah and Julia. But the thing is, all those answers, no matter what I'm talking about, what I do or what I have or who I have a relationship with, the reality is all those things can be lost and all those things can change. My core identity can't be found in any of those things because all those things are temporary. God, when he answers this question, he doesn't point to the things he has or even to the acts he's done. He simply declares to Moses that he is the one whose nature, whose very essence is unchanging. I am who I am. Not who I was, not what I did, not what I will become. God says, I am the unchanging one, the one who is right now and always will be. That's what the name of God means. Yahweh is his name. It means, I am. It points us back to this reality of who God's revealed himself to be to Moses. He's the Holy One, unique and set apart and different from everything else, the un changing one. There's nobody, there's nothing like him. He can't point and say, I am like that. I am this. I am one of those. No, I am who I am. There's no one else like me to compare. He alone is God. He alone is unchanging. He alone is eternal. He alone is the one who can keep a covenant from generation to generation, the spans of hundreds and thousands of years. He's the one who lives through all of it and is active through all of it. He alone is the true king, the true sovereign ruler. He's the one who can see all things, rule over all things, the one who can speak personally and truthfully to his people in every era, the one who knows the names of every single one of us, our God. Yahweh is the great I am. That's who we worship today. The one who is the same today as he was that day with Moses. The unchanging God. We worship the same God Moses worshipped. The true king, the only God that there is. And the thing is, as amazing as Moses' experiences, even just up to this point and what he encounters the rest of his life and the way he walks with God, as amazing as all that is, you and I, we know something Moses didn't know. We get to relate to God in a way that Moses didn't get to relate to God. Because Moses is the one who here learns the covenant name of God. He learns his name is Yahweh. But you and I get to know him by the name he took on in his first advent. When he took on flesh and entered this world, we know that our God is Jesus. And in several places in the New Testament, and this, this is crucial for you to know and understand. If you have never heard this before, if you've never heard me explain this before, then I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen on our YouTube channel, on our podcast channel. There's a message talking about, the, I did a series called uh, the, the Trinity, and we're talking about the triune God, and there's a, there's a 
text, there are several texts there on one lesson. I'm talking about who Jesus is. I'm talking about him being God. Go back and listen to that message because throughout the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly tells the people he is Yahweh. So today, go, if you go watch the History Channel, if you go watch secular religious programs that are kind of trying to explain what it is that they think Christians understand, they're like, well, Jesus, they, they just worship Jesus, but he never really said he was God. No, they're, they're dead wrong. Jesus claimed to be God clearly in the scriptures. He identified himself as Yahweh. He said, I am him. I'm here in the flesh. The God that Moses worshiped, that was me. He makes this clear in several texts throughout the New Testament. He is the God of Moses. He is the God of Joseph. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of Isaac and Abraham. He is the one who entered personally into this grand story, unfolding through the scriptures, taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death, rising from the dead, ascending back into heaven to his throne, ruling and reigning over all things, promising he will once again come with great reward for his people. Hear these crucial words from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 24. I have told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What's he saying here? I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Israelite people. I have come in the flesh, and unless you believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. You will go to hell. You will suffer the wrath for your sins forever. You must believe that I am one in the same, this God who my people have worshipped from the beginning. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the I am in the flesh. And get this, if we don't believe that, if we don't know that to be true, if we don't understand that Jesus is the same God who is at work and is being revealed here in Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament, then you don't have salvation. Those who believe that Jesus is a different God from the God of the Old Testament, they have a different Jesus than the real Jesus. They have a different religion than Christianity. No matter who they think Jesus is, if they do not understand that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh, then those people will die in their sins and they will face hell as the eternal punishment for their rejection of him. Jesus is Yahweh. Moses learns the name of Yahweh there, the side of Mount Horeb. You and I learn the name of Jesus as he enters into this world to not just deliver his people from Egypt and oppression from an evil ruler, but from sin and death itself. The God of Exodus is the same God who saves you and I today. It's Jesus Christ. This is such a powerful chapter in the book of Exodus. Unlike the Pharaohs whose names are not recorded, God reveals his personal name to Moses. The God who sees and providentially controls all things calls out by name those whom he has set his love upon. The utterly transcendent and holy God who is set apart from his creation, who's far greater than anything else exists, he personally enters into time and space and makes the places of his present holy and special. And ultimately, the God who promises salvation and redemption for his people, not only will use a man like Moses to accomplish it in the Exodus, but he himself will come and take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and conquer not just Egypt, but conquer all sin and death fully. He is the great I am. 
He is the one who is the same today, just as he was at the time of the New Testament, just as he was at the time of the prophet Isaiah, just as he was at the time of Moses, just as he was at the time of Abraham. Our God is the unchanging I am. He's immutable. He is faithful. He's magnificent and glorious and holy. And today, he's calling out to you and I by name. He sees you. He knows you. And he's inviting you to come to him today into this great unfolding story of his grace and love and work in this world he invites us in to be a part of it just as he invited Moses in to go back to Egypt and to accomplish a great task that Moses knew I could never accomplish on my own the task God's calling you and I today too is a great task that we can't accomplish on our own but he says the same to Moses as he says to us I am with you And so today we get to respond to him, to his call, to him knowing us and seeing us. Worship team, if you'll come lead us in a final song of response. We're just going to take a few minutes to wait upon God today. Because he's here, this place is holy, not because anything's been made special in this place by by the hands of craftsmen or by the money invested or anything by terms of ritual. This place is holy today because the holy God is here. And he's calling us to respond to his presence today. Today we have these moments to respond to Jesus. He is the God who speaks. He is the God who calls. He is the God who saves. And so... In these next few moments, may each of us hear him and respond to him as we worship his great name, that I am the unchanging God who invites us now to humbly worship and respond to him today. These altars are open. I'd love to pray with you about any needs you may have in your life. If you want to pray where you are, that's fine. There's nothing holy about this place more than that place. God is here. So respond to him today. Pray to him today. Let's spend a few minutes waiting upon the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word, that you speak to us, to your people. And Lord, I pray that each one of us here, as we've heard your words through the scripture today, Lord, that you, you would make clear how you are calling us by name to you to be part of this grand story that's unfolding around us. We believe, God, that you see us and that you know us and that you are the God of providence. There is nothing outside of your control and your power that you are at work here and now. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for who you are and for what you have done and that you are with us. You are the unchanging one. And we bow humbly before you, acknowledging your greatness and your holiness. And Lord, as we leave this place today, I pray that we don't leave here thinking, well, this was an interesting encounter. It was a great few moments in the church today for for this week, and, and we'll come back next. But Lord, that we would know you have spoken the same words to us that you have spoken to Moses. You are with us. So as we leave this place today, Lord, help us leave with that awareness of your presence, with that sense of your love and your power and your mercy and your grace and your desire to speak to us and use us all this week, everywhere we go, Lord. We thank you for your love for us and we thank you for the gift of gathering together today. It's in your beautiful 
and powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus, our great I am. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.